0: All right, if you will take your Bibles, please, and open them to the book of Hebrews, chapter 6. Hebrews chapter 6, beginning again at verse 9, and if you would join me out of reverence for the reading of God's Word as we approach the Scripture this morning. Hebrews chapter 6, beginning at verse 9. But, beloved, we are confident of better things concerning you, yes, things that accompany salvation, though we speak in this manner. For God is not unjust to forget your work and labor of love, which you have shown towards his name, in that you have ministered to the saints and do minister. And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope until the end, that you do not become sluggish, but imitate those who through faith and patience... Inherit the promises. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you bring grace into our hearts. We pray that you would open our eyes, open our ears, open our understanding that your truth would be powerfully taken in, powerfully applied, that it would grow with diligence and that it would bring forth the fruit which is required by your truth. God, we ask that every person in this place, every person within the sound of my voice by whatever medium they hear it, would be made like unto Christ more than we are now. We pray that you would grow us, that you would equip us, that you would challenge us, that you would send us, and that you would bless our labors for the sake of the glory of Christ. And God, I ask that your word would be all that is spoken this day. That there be nothing said or implied or understood that is not a hundred percent in line with your truth. And I pray, Father, that by that teaching and preaching of your truth, lives would be changed, Christ would be honored, and that a spark would be lit in this day that would change the world. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So, what is the relationship between our works and our salvation? Are they a chicken and the egg kind of thing? It's hard to tell which one comes first. Or does one necessarily precede the others? It is a sad fact that getting this question wrong puts us in danger of the fires of hell and an even sadder fact that so many consistently get it wrong. Because no one will ever be able to be good enough to avoid the wrath of God for their sin based upon their work. And yet, the writer of Hebrews states that he sees things that accompany salvation in the Hebrews. It's important to note and to understand that these things are evidentiary and not causative. So I want to think with you this morning about this idea wherein the writer of Hebrews says, but I'm confident of better things concerning you because I see things that accompany salvation. I want to think about what these things might be and what these things certainly mean. And I want to begin by recognizing and reminding us all of the fact that this says things that accompany salvation and not things that create salvation. Okay, That's an important distinction. Salvation is not of works, but salvation is of grace. And the things that we're going to be thinking out today are, by definition, works. They do not produce grace, mercy, favor, or any other thing that makes us saved. And they are not the reason that God chose us. He chose us because he wanted to choose us. He wanted to love us. He wanted to save us. You are a chosen people, not a people rewarded for something God saw in you. You are chosen by God sovereignly, freely, magnificently, gloriously, eternally, savingly. You are chosen by God because He wanted to choose you. Your salvation is is based on that fact. For you to try and put it in any other light is to make your salvation your doing and not God's. God chose you. That exalts Him. You choosing Him, that exalts you. That makes much of you. That makes much of your wisdom. That makes much of your ability. God will not allow us to magnify ourselves at his expense. Okay, So we need to be very clear about this. We need to understand the fundamental reality that these works that accompany salvation have to come after salvation. They do not cause it in any way. And for somebody to think that, well, God saw that I was going to do these things and therefore He chose me, that makes the works causative. That makes the works something that made you acceptable. What the Scripture teaches us is that God selects us based entirely upon His free will and that you are saved entirely by the work, the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. You are saved entirely by His glory and by His grace, and by His blood. So look with me at Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6, beginning at verse 1. Romans chapter 6, beginning at verse 1. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him that the body of sin might be done away with. That we should no longer be slaves of sin. For he who has died has been freed from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we also shall live with him. Knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body, that you should obey it in its lusts. And do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under law but under grace. So what this tells us is that his death is imputed to our account. In other words, God looks at the death of Christ and says to us, you deserved death, you were guilty of sin, and there was nothing about you except sin. There was nothing in you except unrighteousness. There was nothing in you except rebellion, nothing in you except hatred for me. And you deserved an eternity in hell based upon your unrighteousness. But in my sovereign grace, in my free will, I chose to count the death of Christ as if it belonged to you. I counted you as dead. Which means that his life then, having been raised from the dead, is credited to us in the same manner. Jesus died in our place and rose so that we might be counted forgiven. His death becomes ours, thus freeing us from the debt that we owed to God. And His life also becomes ours, thus granting us the ability to live out the works that God calls us to do. This new life is the crux of the thought here. This is what Paul is building up to in this passage. And he's pointing out very plainly and very importantly for us, that new life equals new works. Okay? Any works that please God come after salvation. They cannot come before salvation, or they would be causative of salvation. They cannot come before salvation, or some of the credit for your salvation then belongs to you, which God denies completely. However... Since God in His mercy credits us with the death and the new life of Christ, and then empowers us to live out that new life that He credits us with, then the doors have been opened for us to live new works by this new principle that has been planted in us. So when Paul tells us that this has been accounted to us, it is the same thing that the writer of Hebrews is noticing in his audience. He says, "...I see the works that accompany salvation. And since those things are present, it gives me good confidence that you actually are saved." I see things in you that are different from the way that they were. I see things in you that cannot be attributed to any work of man. And therefore, you should receive comfort from the fact that these things are there. Remember that he has been pounding the Hebrew church pretty hard and and pointing out that there are those among them who are probably not converted. Those among them who, who have acted in good ways and done good things but in the end are sliding back into the old ways of thinking. In the end, they're denying Christ. They're denying that His death is all that important and that they could do things on their own if they just try hard enough or decide deep enough or will strong enough or do whatever it is that they think they're going to do. So he's been pounding them for for the last part of this chapter. And now he's speaking to the rest of them and saying, but I do see things in you that accompanies salvation. And those good works give me good confidence. They give me good hope. So, in the end, I want to think with you about what these things are and what these things look like and what we are to take from them. So, as we think about this, we have to understand that first of all, there is an outward looking truth. I'm sorry, an inward looking truth. Let's start there. <clears throat> it's a truth displayed for our benefit. And it's designed to confirm our salvation, not to produce it. So there are those who who live their lives in a quandary, doubting their salvation, doubting their, their, their being accepted by God because they've got some things wrongly understood. Their, their premises are wrong, their assumptions are wrong, therefore their understanding is wrong, and they don't quite know how to think about things. They look at their sin, they look at their failure, and they say, I can't be saved because I'm doing these things, or they, they look at themselves and they say, I'm just not worthy, and they think that somehow they're supposed to be worthy. Being not worthy is, is a fundamental reality. None of us are worthy, and that's okay. Okay. The fact that none of us are worthy helps us recognize the fact that when you recognize you're not worthy, that's a good thing. Knowing that frees you. So when we think about our lives and we think about the fact that there are things being done in your life that honor the Father and that nobody can do things that actually honor the Father apart from being made new, there is hope in that. That should confirm in you a a, a confidence that you have been transformed. The the evidence of a new life, the evidence of a new spirit, the evidence of a new desire, these things give us hope. They give us joy. They are there to comfort us. And as they comfort us, keep in mind that that comfort may help you cling to Christ and, and therefore maintain your joy as you struggle. But that comfort is not going to keep you saved. It doesn't preserve your salvation. So the good works that are being done in your life, the things that God is leading you to do as you work and labor and and minister unto the body and, and, and carry on your life in a way that is pleasing to the Father, it will help you know that you're saved, but it doesn't keep you saved. So in those times when you fall down and you don't do those things and you look at your life and you say, well, am I even saved? It's the wrong question. You may be losing some of your comfort and you may be losing some of the confirmation of the Spirit speaking to you saying, look, here's why. But you're not losing your salvation. The fact that you keep working doesn't keep you saved. It helps you recognize it. It helps you know it. It helps you be confirmed in your spirit and therefore at peace But it doesn't have any lasting benefit of making sure that you stay saved. That's not what's being taught here. What's being taught here is that, yeah, I see things in you, and I receive comfort from it, and I want you to as well. Now, these works also help to mature us, but they do not make you any more saved. Does that make sense? They're going to cause you to grow in Christ, Because one of the things that works that honor God always do is kill self. It always puts to death the thing that wants to exalt you and make you the center of your universe and make you the center of your world and make your desires the only thing that matters. So anytime you're living in a way that is pleasing to God, that is honoring the Father, that is being consistent with Scripture, one byproduct of it is that it is killing self. And as it's killing self, it's causing you to grow in grace. You're growing up. okay. And so the good works that you're doing that honor the Father, that make you His, um, his, his testimony, they are, they're growing you in grace. They're causing you to walk in a way that is more like Christ every day. And they reaffirm that you are saved, but they do not restore your salvation where they might restore the joy of your salvation. Does that make sense? So if you have been a season away from God and you've looked at your life and and God has called you back unto repentance and you begin to walk in newness of life again, you begin to be be transformed again by the grace that, that is working out in your life, understand that what's happening is that God is reaffirming what has already been done. But he's not making you saved over. He's not re-saving you. He's he's not making you new again. He's just reaffirming. He's causing the sin to be washed from you, the active sin to be removed out of your life, and he's causing you to walk in a way that is pleasing. And when you walk in a way that is pleasing, you find joy in it. If you are saved, you recognize that sin still happens, but it's not nearly as fun as it used to be. Amen? We still engage in things we're not supposed to engage in, and they may be fun in the moment, but the misery that comes after, as the Spirit begins to work on you, should make you recognize, man, I don't want to do that anymore. It's like, maybe when you were young, you would sit down and eat a half a gallon of ice cream, but if you try it now you're probably not going to be happy with yourself. It's just not good. It's not good for you. Some worse than others. So all of these things are the inward truth that that is being pointed at, this this confirmation to us. But there's also an outward-looking truth wherein as we are living obedience, as we are walking in grace and, and living out a righteousness of God by His grace in our lives and the good works that come out of that, those who see you also recognize who you are. And that serves some purposes in their lives. And the very first person that I want to point out that it serves a good purpose in is the writer of Hebrews as as a man who had ministered to this body and who had labored among them and who is writing to them and having to write this painful part of the letter. But then he starts off and he says, I'm persuaded that you are better than I've been talking about because I see things in you that are good. That had to be encouraging to his soul. Because if he'd labored among them and and worked among them and he looked back over all of that time and all of that work and went, there's nothing good there. I've wasted my life. I've wasted my effort. I've wasted myself. That is a really uncomfortable, unpleasant thing to have to look at. There may be times in your life where you look back over the scope of your life and you say, everything I've done has meant nothing. And if that were actually true, it would be incredibly discouraging. Now, I know that sometimes we all feel that way. (laughs) I know that there are times where we look at something and we say, everything I've done is worthless. My whole life means nothing. That's a feeling. I don't think it's true of anybody, at least nobody who belongs to Christ. God makes sure of that. It may not be what you want it to be. And it may not be as much as you'd hoped. Because our own sin and our own failures do contribute to those feelings sometimes. But when we look at somebody's life and we begin to see the good things that God is doing. And and even the particulars. And I want you to notice the tension that exists here. Because he's looking at the church and he's saying, I'm confident, I'm persuaded that you're better than I've been speaking. But there was still the need for him to say the things that he said. So even in the midst of the hope, there is this tension. There is this, okay, there's some bad stuff going on. And yet, in spite of the bad stuff, I'm still persuaded that you belong to Christ. I'm still persuaded that you are saved people. So there's hope being given. Because in all of our lives, there is going to be that tension between the bad that we wish wasn't there and the good that we're grateful for. And that's going to keep us balanced, and that's going to keep us steady, and that's going to keep us able to continue when other things seem to fall apart. So the things that God allows him to remember are the things that reliably confirm their salvation and attest to the power of the gospel. And first of all, it is the reality that the gospel transforms lives. So if you're ministering the grace of God in your circle of influence... You can take comfort from the fact that whether you see the fruit being poured out or not, the gospel transforms lives. God always brings about the harvest that he intends to bring about. And that's a very important thing for us to remember as we fight for the truth of the gospel in this culture. Because right now, there are many people that would say the gospel's not doing any good at all. The church is failing, the church is dying on the vine, and there is nothing good coming out of anything that we do. And that's a perspective. You might be tempted to believe that if you look at the world with man's eyes instead of God's perspective. But what the scripture calls us to remember is that the gospel always has its way. That God will always triumph. And that God will always accomplish what he intended to accomplish no matter what it looks like to us. So we can take hope and comfort and confidence from the fact that if we're being faithful with the gospel, the gospel is doing what God intends it to do. Even if you're not being faithful, the gospel is still doing what God intends it to do. But we also see that from this, we can derive hope in the worth of a life of ministry. And, And I don't mean just, Me, as a pastor, all of you should have a life of ministry. All of you should have a life whereby by the things that God has called and equipped you to do, you are laboring and serving the kingdom of God and and serving His name and His grace by the gifts that God has given you. And though you may not see fruit, you can know that it is worth living that way because God never fails. So you can take hope from that. And there is also the idea of vindication when, when God wants his servant to be comforted. There will be times in your life where God just shows you, it's okay. Don't worry. Don't be afraid. Don't despair. You, you haven't lost anything by trusting me and following after me. This will all work. And that comfort is very important to us. And so when God brings fruit in somebody else's life, and this is, I'm trying to tie this back so we see it. God's bringing fruit in the Hebrew's life to the writer's mind. And there is this moment where he reflects on that and he's comforted by what he sees in them. He's comforted by the fact, I'm confident of better things concerning you. Okay, we can get back to what we were talking about, and and you're going to see the the conversation begin to shift back towards the teaching about Melchizedek, which comes in the next chapter. So the writer of Hebrews had his little diversion when he rebuked them and and was hard with them, but now he's been comforted, and he's been reminded that, that God is doing good things, and the conversation begins to shift. So there is an outward facing reality of the truth. Now, there is also the fact that as you live out Christ and as you live out the gospel and as fruit is being born in you and good works are being produced in you by the grace of God, that there are others who are seeing and giving testimony to the greatness of God by the things in your life. So look at me at Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 3 And starting at verse 8. Ephesians chapter 3, starting at verse 8, it says, "...to me, who am less than the least of all the saints, this grace was given, that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to make all see what is the fellowship of the mystery, which from the beginning of the ages has been hidden in God, who created all things through Christ Jesus." to the intent that now the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church to the principalities and the powers in the heavenly places, according to the eternal purpose which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through faith in him. So I want you to see both the audience and the message here. First of all, the audience is mankind. So Paul is writing about his ministry as a servant of God, And he says, it's been given to me to preach the unsearchable riches of Christ among the Gentiles. And to make them see what is the wisdom of God. So the teaching of God has a a primary audience of the people in your life. As you go out among the pagans among whom God has planted you and you are faithful to proclaim the truth picking up hitchhikers and preaching to them all the way down the road until they're forced to jump out of the truck, whatever it might be. You are proclaiming the gospel of God to a lost and dying generation. And that is your audience. But you are also proclaiming the truth of who God is beyond that. Because what the scripture goes on to tell us is that it is God himself who through you and through the church is declaring to the powers and the principalities his manifest wisdom which has been hidden in him since the beginning. So he's vindicating his own plan, vindicating his own righteousness. So as you are proclaiming the gospel, and as you are being faithful to speak the truth about who Christ is to men, there is one level of audience. But there is also a a higher level of audience, if you will, a, a super audience wherein God is using your life and your testimony and declaring his own greatness through that to the angels that are watching, to the demons that are watching, to Satan himself, saying, my plan is best. My plan is right. One day, Satan, you're going to bend the knee before God, and you also will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. There's no question about that. And as we proclaim the truth of who God is, and we proclaim the truth of the gospel, and we declare the greatness of the God who called us and made us his own, understand that your audience is many. So you may feel like, my life doesn't matter I only have one person that I ever talk to. I only have one person that I'm ever around. I spend my life changing diapers. I spend my life moving patients from here to there. I spend my life in a little cubicle in a bank. I don't get to talk to people. I don't get to be a part of their lives. You need to understand that as long as you are being faithful to do what God has put in front of you to do, God himself is declaring his greatness through your life as you are doing what you are called to do. And there is great power in that, and there is great comfort in that. And there is a scope and a perspective beyond anything that we can possibly understand. So what is the message that is being declared? What Paul lays out for us here is that we are declaring the majesty of God. We are declaring the wisdom of His plan. We are declaring the power of His grace and mercy, and we are declaring the wonders of His sovereign love we are declaring the fact that God is exactly who he says he is, always and eternally. That he does not change, that he is not vindicated, or he is not vacillating, excuse me, in in how he presents himself. He is always exactly who he says he is. And he is vindicating his own righteousness as he does that. Our God is, Is great beyond anything that we can possibly understand. And we have the opportunity to demonstrate to a watching world that, by the way, hates God, that He is exactly who He says He is. We have the opportunity to become the very testimony of God. Your salvation is evangelism in the flesh. So, as you begin to live out righteousness and do good works that both comfort those who labored in your life and testify to the world and to the powers and the principalities, you are also engaged in frontline evangelism because people see your life. They see how Christ is put on in you, or they see how he is not. Your life becomes. The very real evangelism of a life well lived. Look at 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3. And we'll start reading at verse 14. Even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you are blessed. Do not be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear, having a good conscience, that when they defame you as evildoers, those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed. For it is better, if it is the will of God, to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. So, what does Peter tell us? Well, he tells us that in the end, You're going to have the opportunity by how you respond to the circumstances of your life. And I want you to notice that contextually, the circumstances of your life that he's speaking about are difficult circumstances. You are being reviled, you are being persecuted, you are being hounded, you are being hated by the world to whom you are proclaiming Christ. So the dynamic works like this. You are faithful to proclaim the gospel of God. You are faithful to live out Christ. You are faithful to teach who God is. You are faithful to declare the truth of all these things. And the world falls down at your feet and says, Oh, I love you. That's so nice. No, the world hates you for it. And the world attacks you for it. And the world reviles you for it. And the world causes you to suffer for it. So, at this point, you have the opportunity to either fall down and undo everything that you've been doing Or you have the opportunity to stand and say, yes, I love God, and you can't do anything to make me stop loving God, and you can't make me do anything to shut up. You can try, but as long as I have breath in my body and the physical ability to speak, then I will speak His name, and I will speak His glory. And finally, as they're trying their best to break you, they come to the point where they look at you and say, what is your problem anyway? Why is this so important? And that is what... Not only an opportunity, but an invitation to speak to them about why it is so important. It becomes the opportunity that you have longed for, honestly. Especially if you are a person who feels like your life just can't make a difference. You see, in the end, God makes certain that we all are given the opportunity and the ability when it matters to speak the truth of the gospel. You will have that opportunity, but do not be deceived about how comfortable that opportunity might be when it comes. This is 100% in the context of real persecution, and I'm not talking about just getting banned from Facebook. I'm talking about real persecution. I'm talking about them taking the things that we own physically, taking our freedoms, taking our liberty, taking our possessions. I'm talking about them actually harming us. Do not lose sight of the fact that that is happening all over the world right now and that it is coming here to a theater near you. We have had it very easy. And because of that, many of us have become very soft. So I do want us to be aware that now is the time to be strengthening your witness To be strengthening your life for the sake of Christ. Now is the opportunity that you have to take your little miseries and turn them into the training ground for the large miseries that are going to come. The little pains that right now derail you, they just might be the training ground that God has brought into your life to strengthen you. They just might be the thing that God has brought in order to make you more effective later. So how you respond to your difficulties, be they physical difficulties, be they emotional difficulties, be they work-related, be they friend-related, be they desire-related, or just be they sin. However you respond to those things now when they're small and manageable, and I know somebody's going to say, you have no idea how unmanageable my difficulties are. You're right, I don't. However, I know that they are nothing compared to what they will be. That much I know. So right now, they are manageable, and right now, they are small, and right now, they are the training ground for what is coming later. So if you want to live out a life wherein your good works actually accomplish things for the sake of Christ, then begin that training now. Begin that training today. Begin that training in the midst of these things that you're facing, that if you were honest with yourself and honest with us, you would rather not be facing at all. Most of us have something in our lives that we would say, I wish I could change this, but that's the wrong approach. The right approach is to say, God, why have you brought this into my life and help me use it for my advantage spiritually? Help me grow in grace because of this thing that I wish I didn't have. Help me live in a way that is consistent with your truth so that the things that I have in me are all benefiting the kingdom for the sake of my king. That's the way to approach your difficulties. Because when you get that right in the small things, and when you get that right now, then later on when they are the large things, you stand a much better chance of getting that right consistently. Amen? You stand a much better chance of living this out with power. So, you become God's vindication and you become God's calling card. You become the one who has a winsome appeal to others of God's goodness and you become joy and peace in the midst of evil days. Look, life has meaning. Life has purpose. And the meaning and purpose for this life is the kingdom work that God is permitting you to do and the things that God has set in front of you to do. So all the days that you are granted on this rock, you should be excited about the purpose that God has planted in your life today. This moment, this one, right here, right now, this is the only one that I can promise you you have. So you better make the most of it. You better live it with joy and live it with purpose and live it with intention instead of laying around wishing it were something different or wishing you were someone different or wishing you were somewhere else. Live this moment with joy and purpose and focus and see what God does through your life. Because there's not a one of us in this room that I I think would look at our lives and say, this is a life poised for impacting the world. We just don't see ourselves that way. We're not the great movers and shakers of our kingdoms. But the truth of the scripture is that every single life in this place is a life poised to impact the world for the kingdom of God. And that's how we have to see it. We have to take God at his word because we don't understand everything God is doing in us. But here's the dynamic that's at work. Salvation changes everything about you. There is no part of your life that is untouched and unchanged by salvation. It begins by changing our relationship to everything that God has made. We do not desire to worship the earth. We do not desire to save it because it's our only hope. That's the green world, right? That's the idea that's being touted by the the eco-Nazis that are out there. The idea that if we mess this rock up, then we have nothing left. There's no hope for us. That's not our desire. Our desire as biblically thinking Christians is to be a steward of God's creation. To understand that God has given us this creation to use and to use faithfully. Genesis 2.15 says, The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to tend and to keep it. So God gave us this creation to do something with. We use things wisely, carefully, and responsibly, but we are to use them. So if you're going to be a biblically thinking person challenging the assumptions of the world, you need to recognize that the up-and-coming philosophy of the world is worship the earth. It's a bunch of hooey. The earth is a creation, it is God's creation, and it is destined for destruction by fire. On the day that God has appointed, in the time that God has determined, this earth, these heavens will be dissolved by fire. It will vanish away, 2 Peter 3.7 says, the heavens and the earth which are now preserved by that same word, that's the word of God, are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and the perdition of ungodly men. Beloved, you are still to obey the creation mandate. You are to bring order out of the chaos, and that impacts everything that you do. It impacts life. It impacts art. It impacts poetry. It impacts what you read. It impacts what you think. It impacts what you sing. It impacts everything that you do. You are called to bring order out of the chaos. So when you're engaging with chaotic minds, and you're sharing the gospel with them, what are you doing? You're at least a little bit trying to bring order to the chaos. And if you've had conversations with ungodly people and had a chance to actually sit down and listen to the things that they think, I can't think of a better word than chaos. It's madness, it's just madness. And we see it on the news every night and we hear it from our politicians and we hear it every place that we look. There is madness that is governing the age. Beloved, we are the voice of reason and sense. We are the voice of truth. And we are the voice of God in the midst of this perverse generation. And you are called to bring order from the chaos. You are called to speak it. You are called to live it. It changes your dynamic with God's creation. It changes your dynamic with God's family. It changes how we engage with the people of God. It changes our relationship to those that God says are his own. Look again at first Peter chapter two this time. First Peter chapter two, starting at verse four, says this coming to him as a living stone, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious. You also, as living stones, are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Therefore, it is also contained in the scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect and precious. He who believes on him will by no means put to shame. Therefore, to you who believe, he is precious. But to those who are disobedient, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble being disobedient to the word, to which they also were appointed. But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. There, those are your marching orders, by the way. Why has God saved you? What purpose is served by it? You proclaiming the greatness of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Who once were not a people, but who are now the people of God. Who had not obtained mercy, but have now obtained mercy. So your relationship to the people of God is dynamically transferred. You once were apart from the people of God. But you are now a part of the people of God. Okay? Your relationship to those who God says, I love them, is dynamically different. It has been changed by His power. We, because we have been altered by God's grace, should desire to be in loving relationships with the people that God has put His name upon. Beloved, this, this transcends bounds of race. It transcends bounds of nationality. It transcends bounds of gender. And I don't mean whatever they decide they're going to be. I mean men and women. There are two genders. God made them both, and that's all there are. It, it transcends the bounds that often are the very divisive things among us. Look, those things are Artificial. There are those who say, well, I just can't love a person who looks differently than I do. I just can't have a good relationship with that race. The scripture tells us in Acts chapter 17 that God has made of one blood every race of men on the earth. Those distinctions are artificial and they are godless. You have no call to harbor prejudice in your heart against anybody of another color or another race, period. They are your brother and sister. If they are found in Christ, you're going to spend eternity with them. So you better get used to the idea. I'm sorry. I was very loud. You hear me? They are your brothers and sisters in Christ. And the distinctions that we raise about them are 100% of the devil, they are artificial and they are false. God is made of one blood every race of the earth. One blood. And it doesn't take great theological thinking to get to that place. In the beginning, how many people did God make? Two. One man, one woman. They got together. They had lots of chillins. Out of those lots of chillens came other lots of chillens. And out of those lots of chillens came other lots of chillens. And eventually it got to the point where the earth was filled and then God said, you guys are all godless and I'm going to destroy all of you except how many? Eight. In case you didn't do the math right. Noah and his wife, their three sons and their three wives. But it all still comes back to Two. Beloved, we are all descended of the same people. And we don't live that outright as the church, then the humanistic idea of evolution, which says that the races are distinct because people are evolving and they look different accordingly, that garbage wins. And that garbage has been winning for a long time because the church has vacated the ground of truth. Beloved, we need to understand that our relationship to the people that God calls his own is changed by the gospel. And our love for them needs to be changed in accordance to the gospel. And when those old things out of our upbringing or those old things out of our personal experience or those old things brought up out of the the way that the culture is doing their best to divide the races against each other, and don't miss that, because it's happening all the time. The culture is seeking to divide us against each other. And if the church falls victim to that, then wherein is the ground of truth? When those things rise up, recognize them for what they are, rebuke them for the sin that they are, and repent. Give your heart back to your God and confess the sin of your prejudice, saying, Lord, please forgive me and please help me to love my brother. Amen. Because your relationship with the people that God calls his own changes. We desire to be in loving relationships with the people of God. We desire to do what is needful to build those loving relationships. We desire to fellowship one with another. We desire to spend time together. We desire to be a family That change is occurring in us because of the power of the gospel. Because the gospel gives us a love for people that extends beyond us. The love of man says this, what can you do for me? And as long as you do for me, I will love you. That's human love. God's love says, how might I serve you? I love you because I love you. And I really don't know why, but I do. How might I labor in the gospel for you? How might I serve you in the love of the Lord? I want to deepen our relationship. I want to deepen our our friendship. I want to deepen the fact that we are brothers and sisters in Christ. How might I deepen that? And our conversations with one another, the time that we spend together, the time that we actually just live life together, those things are incredibly important. And you have the potential to make them powerful for the gospel by the things that you choose to talk about when you are free to talk about them. You have the potential to make your relationships actually matter for the sake of the kingdom by living your life with an eye to invest in them, to to spend yourself deeply in the people of God, and to say, Lord, help me build this relationship. Let my conversation, let my intention, let my life minister to this person for the sake of the kingdom. That potential is in you. And that's one of the good works that the writer of Hebrews saw in the church. We desire to strengthen those relationships. We care about the people that God loves and calls family. You see, we used to only love us. We used to only love ourselves. We used to only be a people who didn't care about anybody else and didn't care for them because we didn't care about them. But now we desire as a people of God to actually minister Christ unto others consistently, continually, sacrificially, and selflessly. Because our relationship with the people of God has been changed by the power of the gospel. This is what the writer of Hebrews saw in the church. This is why he said, I'm confident of better things concerning you. It also changes our relationship to the law of God. What was our relationship to the law? Well, according to Scripture, we hated it. We hated everything that God had to say. We hated His perspective. We hated what was right. We hated what was proper and good. Romans 3.23 says that every single one of us is guilty of sin. It says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And that's a really pithy expression, but what it means deep down is that every single one of us hated every single thing that God ever said, period. You say, well, that's not true of my life because I was really morally a pretty good person. You, my dear friend, were morally a pretty good person because the laws that you chose to obey served you for what you wanted. The minute that they crossed you, you threw them out. You say, Well, I never robbed any banks. Sure, you didn't, because you didn't want to go to jail. But if you thought you could have and gotten away with it, you'd be a lot wealthier than you are right now. That's all of us. And to deny that essential fact calls the scripture a liar. That defines every single one of us. And the reality is, is that when God changes our hearts, which is one more reason why he has to move first. Because every single one of us rejects him, hates him, hates his law, hates his truth. When God changes our hearts, he changes our perspective on his law. And no longer do we hate it. We still disobey it, but we want to do better than we do. In Romans chapter 7, Paul says, The things that I want to do, these I don't do. The things that I don't want to do, these I find myself doing. Oh, who will deliver me from this body of death? That dynamic's at work in us. But our relationship to the law has been transformed by the power of God in us. Under His law, we were condemned to die for our rebellion. Under His grace, we have been forgiven by the blood of Christ applied to us. Under His law... We were guilty and damned. But under his grace, we are forgiven. We are pardoned. And more than that, we are not only made his children, but we are made heirs with Christ. Everything that Christ owns, we are given. Now, we see the law now as right, as pure, as faithful. As holy, we see the law as the thing which guides our thinking and our actions. We submit to the law, owning that God is right, even where His law is contrary to our own fleshly desires. Do you see the inherent conflict between your perspective on the law of God and the culture's perspective on the law of God? Because what you were, they are. Okay? You say, but they're such nice people. Perhaps they are, until you get sideways of them. Everybody's nice as long as they're getting what they want from you. And maybe all they want from you is respect. Maybe all they want from you is a little kindness. You say, those aren't bad things. You're right, those aren't bad things. But what if you don't give them? Are they so nice? Are they so kind? Are they so good? See, our perspective to the law, apart from Christ, is 100% selfish. It also makes it very hypocritical because we're very willing to overlook our own failings in that sense when we look at others. We're very willing to overlook our own sin while we point out somebody else's. That's par for the course. But when God changes our hearts, that dynamic reverses. And we begin to examine our own lives And let our own understanding of grace transform how we proceed with others. So the bludgeoning typically stops, or at least slows down tremendously. We're not so quick to beat other people up. We're not so quick to tell them how wrong and bad and wicked they actually are. We might point out what God says because we're trying to share with them the truth. But we're not running around being hateful to people if we're walking in grace. And we're not running around being hateful to people if we're walking in grace because we have a better understanding of our own relationship to the law. We recognize, I'm trying to do what God says, and I'm getting it wrong. How right can I expect this person who still hates God to even come close to his law? So grace gets introduced into the conversation. Grace gets introduced into our feelings. Grace gets introduced into our obedience as we minister Christ. Now, I'm not suggesting for one second that we do not speak the truth about what God requires. To tell somebody that God's okay with their sin because it's what they want is hateful and evil. And when churches get in line with the transsexual agenda and the homosexual agenda and tell people, you know what? God's okay with it because I don't want to offend you. They're lying And worse than lying, they are condemning people to hell because God is not okay with it according to his word. And if we do not speak the truth about it, then what we are doing is actively hating the people to whom we are speaking. It might offend them to hear the truth. Well, let me restate that. It will offend them to hear the truth. But it just might save them. And if that's not important enough to you to risk their anger, then you need to reevaluate your own heart. You need to reevaluate your own feelings. You need to reevaluate who it is that God has called you to be and what it is that God has delivered you from. Because all of this, from his creation to his family to his law, leads up to the fact that what is changed in us fundamentally is our relationship to God himself. Prior to the gospel having its way with us, every single one of us hated God with all we were worth. We, we despised him. Our only choice was for us. Our only desire was for our will. And that doesn't change Until God changes it. That doesn't alter until God alters us. That's our basic reality. We were opposed to him. We hated him with all that we had in us. Ultimately, salvation changes our relationship to God. Look at Romans chapter 1 with me. Romans chapter 1. We're just going to read a few verses here. Starting at verse 18, Romans 1 tells us this. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because what may be known of God has been shown, has been made, is manifest, excuse me, because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools, and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man, birds, four-footed animals, and creeping things. The rest of the chapter tells us, therefore, God gave them over to an increasing rise of their sin. God gave them over to an increasing outgrowth of their rebellion. God gave them over to an increasing desire only for themselves. And if we skip down to verse 28, even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting, being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness. They are whisperers, backbiters, haters of God. So somebody says to me, I never hated God. The scripture says you did. They were haters of God. Proud, violent, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents. If you disobey your parents... You're demonstrating that you hate God. Undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful, who knowing the righteous judgment of God that those who practice such things are deserving of death not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. So revert back to what I said about churches defiling the ground of truth and saying God's okay with your sin. When you give your approval to somebody who's walking in rebellion against God, you are guilty of the sin that they are committing. Be clear about this. This is not a minor issue. God calls the church to speak truth. God calls the church to be the ground of truth. God calls the church to walk in such a way that Christ is displayed in how we do it. Because we were rebels against his rule. We are now children of his love. We were Hostile to his person. We are now beloved of him. And we love him because of that fact. John tells us we love him. Why? Because he first loved us. He actively imparted his love to us. And called us to life. And the response that that generates in us. Is called repentance. We repent after God loves us. We repent after God makes us new. When he moves We respond. That's the nature of it. We were opposed to his purposes, but we are now aimed at the same glorious purpose. We want to see God exalted. We want to see him made much of, and that's been his purpose all along, to display himself, to display his glory to us. And we want to see that. We want to be a part of his work. We want to be a part of his nature. We were contrary to his very existence. How many people do you know who are so determined that God is not that they will look at things which display Him so profoundly like a new baby and say, what does that show? It just shows a biological process. They're so blind to the glory. But now, with eyes that see, we behold God everywhere. I defy a person who's been truly born again to look at anything that God has made and not see His signature written into it. From, from a new life to a new leaf. <laughs> God has made them all. And every single one declares his glory. And our relationship with God has tra- been transformed by the power of the gospel so that we no longer see him as we used to. But instead, we are engaged with him in a powerful, real, transcendent relationship that defines everything that we do. It shapes us. It makes us over, and it makes us new. In the end, we used to seek our own, but now we seek him. God is our highest desire, he is our surest hope, and he is our only hope. And the great reality is this, he is our promise. This is the truest testimony of your conversion that there can be, the fact that you desire God as he says he is. This is the truest reality that demonstrates who God is and who he has made you to be. Galatians chapter 4, verses 6 and 7 says, Because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God through Christ Jesus. Beloved, at the end of it all, Your relationship with God is His work. But the fact that it is His work makes it be exactly what it is supposed to be. It's changed you. And it's changed you in fundamental ways. And I want you to see those ways and rejoice in what God has done. And where there are places in your life where it's not lining up with what the scripture says it's supposed to be, that is a great opportunity for you to repent. Because sin revealed always requires repentance. And that's okay. John tells us in 1 John that if we say we have no sin, we call God a liar. Every single one of us has sin in us. Every single one of us has opportunities for repentance being given to us constantly. But if you don't see the world aright, then you're not going to act in a way that's consistent with his truth. It's important for you to get your head around this because it transcends not only your comfort, which it's supposed to give you comfort, but it also becomes something which empowers your testimony or hinders it. And if you're not living this right because you're not understanding this right, then take advantage of the opportunity to adjust your understanding that Christ would be honored. I beg you, in everything that you do, let him be first. Let's pray. Father, I ask that you give us grace in this day, and I pray, Lord, that you would teach us to see the world through your eyes, that we would live out the hope of our calling in a way that transforms the world. God, we pray that Christ would be honored, that he would be exalted, and that his name would be made much of. And help us to live that truth in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen.